how do you deal with a character who in the first act of your story becomes completely overpowered so strong that he can take on heaven and almost win where do you go from there well probably quite a lot of you listening more net more or less know the story of journey to the west shioji so it's a bit of a redundant question but maybe it's worth sort of analyzing it a little bit and that is one of the things i'll be doing with my guest for this episode julia lovell she's the translator of the new english edition of shioji and it's got a sort of a um, have your cake and eat it name in translation it's called monkey king colon journey to the west colon being the punctuation mark it doesn't have the word colon in the title that would be uh, weird anyway i'm angus stewart you're listening to the translated chinese fiction podcast and before we charge ahead with the interview we're going to do the trichia fic news the translated chinese fiction news so let's see what's the uh not the gossip, but let's see what's what's been going on in the world of translation of Chinese into English. I've got three three things. So the first one, I, I've sunk to a new low, really. I, my news item is a tweet, <laughs> or it's something I learned from a tweet, and I, I Google searched, and this information has only been put out as a tweet, because this is the world we live in. So a publisher called Sublunary Editions, who are an independent press publishing brief volumes of innovative writing, are publishing or are going to be publishing a new Tsanshue book uh, or a translation of a Tsanshue book called Mystery Train and the little graphic they've made is um, it's just kind of modern looking sans serif text on an orange background which immediately sorry which immediately makes me think of train spotting uh, maybe that wasn't deliberate though but anyway yeah there's going to be a new Sancho book in translation called Mystery Train, translated by uh, Natasha Bruce, and it's going to be apparently an anxiety dream of a novella. And um, Natasha retweeted the tweet and added some other snippets. What did she say? There's going to be wolves plus darkness plus a train. Yes, mystery. Yes, plus more wolves plus a general sense of disorientation mixed with dread, kind of like after dental surgery. When you're waiting for the injection to wear off, open brackets, I have just had dental surgery, today is a perfect circle, and already we're sounding halfway between a Tanjua short story and halfway uh, in the other direction, an extremely online Twitter account. So let's let's go back to some more conventional, traditional, and not insane news. Let's um, let's look at Young Lian and Brian Holton. So when we did Young Lian on the show, Brian Holton was the guest. So it's pretty cool that they have made the news, this sort of uh, poet-translator duo. They've won the first Sarah Maguire Prize for Poetry in Translation, which I'm reading off the bookseller here. Um, it's a new award that recognizes the best of poetry by a living poet from Africa, Asia, Latin America, or the Middle East, published in English translation. There is more to say about the book. Like there are others, there are some other translators involved, but I'll just I'll just leave the link in the show notes. So I'll, I'll just say on the show, congrats to um, Yang Lian and and Brian Holton. Go on yourselves, as we say here in Scotland. So yeah, well well done, guys. Third and final news item. It's about Mr. Jia Pinghua, and it's an online event. So Sinuous Books are doing an event similar to the um, one they did for Li Juan. Uh, they're doing an event called Jiapinghua, Master Storyteller of Rural China. And they've got his translator, Christopher Payne, who's uh, translated 
a new um, novel in translation of jazz, which is going to be coming out, uh, The Mountain Whisperer. So the original Chinese name is uh, Laosheng. Um, I will I read the description of this event? Yeah, I'll read. I'll start reading it, and then if it um, if it's starting to get too long, I'll cut myself off. Hosted by Sinuous Books and the University of Toronto, we'll be getting to know one of China's literary giants. Led by Christopher Payne, translator of his rural epic The Mountain Whisperer, we'll not only be learning about Jiapinghua, but also the process of translating his words for an Anglophone audience. Yeah, and then the rest is just bios for Jia and Christopher. So yeah, what can I say? Uh, get that one in your diary. Uh, there'll be a link for it in the news items in the show notes, and it's happening on the 9th of April. So if you're listening after the 9th of April, unless you own a time machine, you can't attend the event, but you might well be able to find it um, posted on social media like YouTube or something, or maybe clipped. I don't know, but um could still be worth a Google. Anyway, that is all of the Trichific news, so we're just going to charge on with the interview now. So I hope you enjoy listening to my chat with Julia. I'm, I am I enjoyed it. So, so um, although I always say that, don't I? Um, and it gets harder and harder to sound sincere. But yeah, genuinely, it was a good interview. I think you'll enjoy it. So I'll, I'll shut up now and I'll let you guys listen to the chat. So on the show, we have... Julia Lovell, the translator of Monkey King, Journey to the West, a new translation. So hi, Julia. Uh, how's it going? And what have you been up to? It's going fine, thank you. Uh, two weeks ago, I had my first COVID jab, so I hope I'm full of antibodies by now. And this morning, before we spoke, I've been reading about plague demons and uh, mountain goblins. Oh, strangely appropriate then. Hmm. So can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your journey as a translator before we get on to uh, The Monkey King's journey? Uh, Of course. I was very lucky to have the opportunity to learn Chinese for a couple of years as a Cambridge undergraduate um, in the mid to late 1990s. Um, And that launched me onto postgrad studies in Chinese. I took on my first translation project, uh, Han Chaogong's wonderful Dictionary of Ma Chao, as a PhD student about 20 years ago. And since then, I've translated a range of contemporary writers, including Yan Liang Ke, and Zhu Wen, plus a couple of 20th century classics, um, Lu Xun and Zhang Ailing. Uh, but Monkey King Journey to the West is my first foray into uh, the sort of early modern imperial vernacular world of fiction. I don't know if I'd mentioned this to you previously, possibly not, but very early on in this podcast, we did one of your other translations. We did the Zhang Ailing, uh, Alien Chang a lost caution that was like episode seven or something oh great yeah it was it was a really nice read so it's it's quite exciting for me to have you on the show now but um i won't overwhelm you with praise i'll just keep us going um onto the first set of questions which are about shioji uh, the journey to the west and its history in translation um and i'm pretty new to just Chinese classical literature in general on this podcast, which has been like my prior to this podcast, I've read almost nothing. This podcast has been my sort of learning journey. And most of the literature I've done has been modern stuff. So anyway, I'm pretty new to all the classics, not just uh, Journey to the West. But luckily for me, you had a pretty excellent intro in this new edition that kind of gets into um, where the story came from 
where it's been and where it's going. But um, for the benefit of the listeners, could you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Well, one of the really interesting and notable things about Xi Yuji, uh, Journey to the West, is that it's a novel that has, or it's a set of stories that's passed on across the ages through new interpretations, adaptations and versions. So it's a novel which is about shape-shifting, but that has itself shape-shifted. So the 100-chapter version first published in 1592, uh, which I basically did my translation from. This version sprang out of much older oral versions of the story. Um, The story itself is very loosely based on historical events. So one of the central characters, Tripitaka, was a real Chinese Chinese Buddhist monk um, living between 602 and 664. And he made a very tough, dangerous journey to India to bring scriptures back to China in the 620s. Now, his life story began being mythologized even before his death. And then these myths spiraled um, in the centuries afterwards. By about the early 13th century, the story of Tripitaka's journey had gained the monkey character who became um, a sort of magic disciple of Tripitaka. But the character of monkey, his origins might lie in Chinese or even Hindu mythology. So scholars debate about this. Then the novel was published anonymously in 1592. But over the next five centuries, dozens of adaptations have appeared across print, uh, theatre, film, music, dance and the fine arts. And Chinese people probably more often access the novel's stories and characters through these adaptations than through the original 1592 text because the original is enormously long and it's written in a pre-modern vernacular that's quite a long way from contemporary Chinese. Yeah, a question has occurred to me. Uh, I don't know if you would know the answer to this, but since the original text is so huge and it's from so long ago, what would a physical copy of it have looked like? Do you know? Uh, back in, you mean back in the 16th century? Yeah, yeah. Oh gosh, well it would have been across many volumes. The vo- the version that I translated from um, is from the edition which was published in 1954, so very early on in the history of the People's Republic of China. And this itself is quite an interesting piece of cultural history because as is well known after the uh, success of the communist revolution in 1949 all sorts of types of culture and people and objects associated uh, with the with the old society came under a cloud of suspicion but even though journey to the west um, was um, you know very much rooted in popular religious culture and history from the early medieval period up to the early modern period um, the novel seems to have um, escaped 
the proscriptions which uh, other cultural products faced. Um, uh, the book was reinvented in some ways. It, the, the, the endings of um, and the, the meanings of some of the stories were very much changed during the Mao era. But it is striking that at this, this, this time of, 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 of suppression and crackdown on all sorts of um, traditional pre-communist culture that uh, the book seems to have had some quite high-level sponsors within the uh, Chinese communist leadership. Yeah, I got some flashbacks whilst I was reading your intro. I got a flashback to when I visited, I think it's called the China Art Museum or something like that, the big red one in Shanghai, which has a little corridor devoted to um, pre-20th century PRC kids animated films and I remember one of them I was able to sort of recognize because I knew about Journey to the West at that time and there was clearly a sort of Monkey King Journey to the, Journey to the West cartoon called Uproar in Heaven which I think is yeah. based on the chapter when he goes after the the gods in heaven so to speak and your intro reminded me of that because you were describing how that was sort of I guess kosher under PRC I don't know PRC censorship for lack of a better word and how the Monkey King got kind of not repurposed, but they zoomed in on his sort of <clears throat> his rebellious side and the uprising he instigated. Is um, would you like to say anything about that? Is there anything I don't know? Any way we can analyze that? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. I'm glad you brought up that uh, particular animation. So in Chinese, it's Dan Tian Gong, and it was completed across the first half of the '60s and. It's really interesting for a couple of standout reasons. Um, one is I think it's, it's, it's visually still very appealing. So it was done by the famous Chinese animators, the, the, the Wan brothers, um, who are you know, often called the, 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 the fathers of Chinese animation. And you can see in the, this, this particular cartoon um, that they're striving to add you know, really strong appealing elements of a Chinese aesthetic in animation. So one example is if you look at the, um, the, 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 the heavenly ladies have these incredibly sort of beautiful, elegant, graceful um, figures and arms, which are very reminiscent of uh, medieval Chinese Buddhist paintings. But the other really interesting aspect is um, the changes to the original story which this animation made and these changes were not new to this animation they were part of a set of um, adaptations and reinventions of the story which had already been established amongst audiences in the 1950s so they were very, they very much represented a kind of communist cultural orthodoxy uh, on the novel and its meaning so the cartoon um, only covers the, the the story of the first seven chapters of the novel um, and in these first seven chapters a monkey uh, acquires the, the, the monkey king figure um, acquires his magical superpowers but makes a massive nuisance of himself <laughs> in heaven uh, so he's he's, he's he's arrogant he's a troublemaker um, he's incredibly angry when it seems that you know he hasn't been given a high-ranking job or he hasn't been invented to when, when he hasn't when he discovers he's not been invited um, to this kind of once in 10 millennia 
banquet. Um, so he takes his revenge by guzzling all the immortal wine and elixirs and peaches and then um, not really thinking too much about the consequences, he then runs away. Um, and in the novel, this leads to a huge battle between the kind of forces of law and order in heaven and monkey, uh, which um, heaven eventually wins and monkey is pinned beneath a mountain um, and left there to sort of reflect on his um, bad deeds for the next five centuries until he is released to redeem his sins by escorting this pious monk Tripitaka on his pilgrimage to India. But the animation and the sort of PRC adaptations of the 1950s completely change this ending. So first of all, they only deal with the prologue, so monkeys troublemaking in heaven. And they end not with monkeys defeat by heaven and heaven's ruler, the Jade Emperor, uh, but rather with um, monkey being victorious and sort of destroying uh, the oppressive establishment of heaven. And so, you know, it's not very hard to see how this reading how this 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 adaptation this reinvention of the story um would fit with um prc communist orthodoxy about um the inevitable victory of uh, revolution by the masses against um an oppressive uh, establishment of rulers so that sort of remaking the story was very much designed to disseminate the messages of mao's own revolution against the establishment it kind of sounds like fan fiction in a way that where it, it um, gives you the lets you have your cake and eat it or skip straight to the pudding. So I, I'm, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a, like a, a fan fiction story where the writer will take a romance that was only teased in the original story and only works if it has problems or doesn't work. And in the fan fiction version, you just may, wave your magic wand and you um, get the kind of what you get the reward without all the things that build up to it. I don't know if I'm making sense, but sort of break, breaking the conventional rules of storytelling because there's something you're trying to skip to the end to get. Yeah, it's a really interesting comparison. I suppose the difference sort of by the middle of the 60s is that once the cultural revolution starts, then all sorts of texts become um, impossible to access. Mm. So I suppose, you know, up to the 1950s, early 1960s, if a you know, really reader really wanted to look at the original messages of the novel, they could have gone back to it. But then, of course, that becomes impossible or at least very difficult and potentially dangerous after 1966. Yeah. So I guess that's the difference between having an alternate take on something and completely mm. rewriting something by way of getting rid of the old version. Um, I'm going to move to the next question before we just talk about the uproar in heaven for, for an hour. Um, you were naming the monk before, uh, Tripitaka, and most of the times I'd seen his name before, it was being rendered as uh, Xuanzang, I think, which is in uh, your new edition, but might contrast that, I think, with some other uh, of the older translations in English of, of Journey to the West. So we might talk specifically about that name in a minute, but first I just want to ask you, uh, which translators, at least from Chinese to English, have had a crack at this before you? 
So there were some partial translations um, into English done in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, but the most important translations were completed in the 20th century. Um, And here I'd like to pay particular tribute to uh, the translations by Arthur Whaley in the 1940s and by Anthony Yu and Bill Jenner between the 1970s and 1980s, because I found them all, although contrasting in their approach and style I found them all invaluable resources to consult while doing my own version. Mm. And that leads me to my next question how did this new translation come about and what purpose does it serve? Maybe purpose isn't the right word but that's how I'm going to ask it. Well I, I was invited to take the project on by the wonderful Penguin editor John Siciliano who's done a huge amount to commission and promote new translations of the Chinese classics. It's not a project that otherwise I might have thought of naturally for myself. My training is very much in modern Chinese and all my translations up to this point had been of 20th and 21st century authors. But as soon as I started to think properly about the idea, it made great sense um, as a way of developing my interests and knowledge. Um, The project took me deep into the language and structures of pre-modern vernacular fiction, which are an important influence on many of the contemporary novelists that I've studied, such as Mo Yen. And also, um, uh, in addition to uh, doing translations, um, I am an academic historian at the University of London. Um, And between 2012 and 2018, I was working on a global history of Maoism. And uh, Xi Journey to the West and the monkey character Sun Wukong were both great favourites of Mao. So working intensively on the novel through translation was a fascinating way of understanding one facet of Mao's personality. Um, in terms of the, 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 the purpose or the objective of doing this new version, I was driven on by the fact that although this novel is such a big influence on Chinese culture and imagination, it seemed to be quite little read in the Anglophone world outside specialist circles. So the full translations that exist are wonderful resources, but their length and the vast amount of intricate detail in the novel can seem intimidating to readers. And Arthur Whaley's abridgment was completed some 80 years ago, since when, of course, language and literary style have changed a great deal. So in taking the translation on, I I suppose I was giving myself a challenge. Um, The challenge was can I study the original in full? Can I assess and select what I feel are the most important elements and themes? And at the same time, can I translate them in a contemporary idiom that both reflects and conveys the profound otherness of the world being described, uh, but in an idiom, a language that communicates its energy and appeal to Anglophone readers? Yeah, and I think that's exactly what you did. I was going to say, actually, um, in an, an episode not so long ago, um, where we did me and some guests did several several short stories and excerpts, we did uh, we did use the Anthony C U translation because one of my guests wanted to do the the two monkeys chapter, a chapter that's not actually in yeah. your new version, and I did kind of feel as I was reading it that I was using it as a resource rather than like sort of reading it for for fun. It felt like he preserved the very oldie feel and I got the feeling based on the fact that I could see I was reading from like volume three of x how many volumes yeah I got the sense that it was a completionist version and I do actually have the um 
the Arthur Whaley version on my shelf. It's actually next to my copy of your translation of Lost Caution. And I did, I, I really should spend more time on this, but I like had a look comparing the first two pages and it was, it was very interesting, but I didn't jump in further than that. But I see exactly what you mean. Uh, uh, um, but I mean, I suppose that's that's one of the wonders of the book, that it lends itself not only to different readings, but to such varied approaches in translation. So I, I, I see that as a kind of cultural literary wonder in itself. Mm, yeah, definitely. Let's steal ourselves for combat now. We're going to go on to the questions sort of about sort of if I was being mean to myself, I'd call them the surface level questions about the characters and the quests and the humans and the demons and whatnot. Um, so one of the first things I noticed, um, and this relates to what we were saying about making like a, a readable version that your average Joe will enjoy. I was kind of surprised by how much personality some of the characters had. Um, and I noticed that most of the personality was coming through the dialogue. Occasionally there were some quite subtle deeds the characters were doing, but um, it was the dialogue that really made me uh, either like or dislike or just be interested in some of the characters. So what I wanted to ask you was, is all that personality there in the original text or did it take a little um, teasing out on your part? I think it's all there in the original text. But when you abridge something, these elements come out more sharply, more clearly, perhaps. Right. So the original is is very long. Um, it contains many more challenges and trials and descriptive passages and poems and many more monsters and other cameo characters than I had room to include in my word limit, which was 100,000 words. And my process for abridging was to read the novel in its entirety um, and from that reading to make decisions about the most important themes and characters um, and then to bring out those themes and characters by selecting the episodes that I felt best illustrated them. And so once you put these episodes back to back rather than seeing them separated by sometimes dozens of chapters as they are in the original, then these characteristics, these themes will inevitably come to seem more marked. Um, so Monkey's main personality traits are mischief, energy, resourcefulness, and that comes through very clearly in the first seven chapters, which I translated pretty much in their entirety. Um, there's his junior disciple, then Pigsy, um, who's also a pretty handy fighter, but boastful and focused on instant personal gratification. And a lot of the humour in the dialogue springs from the rivalry between Monkey and Pigsy. Uh, Tripitaka, meanwhile, is, is, is peevishly pious. That was a kind of personality trait which I picked up on through the book. Um, Sandy, the final disciple, is unfortunately not very well developed even in the original, although there are you know, quite frequent references to how morose and miserable he looks. Um, so I, I sort of brought out those elements, but also, I think often Sandy is a kind of straight man foil um, to the bickering between Monkey and Pixie. 
in that previous episode I mentioned when me and my, my guests were talking about Journey to the West, um, TNG, the, the person who wanted us to talk about the Two Monkeys chapter, she said um, she would really like to see a version of the story told from Sandy's perspective. And she compared it to when she, uh, on Broadway or something in the States, saw there's a production of the Harry Potter story called Puffs, which is all from the perspective of Hufflepuff characters. I don't, I don't know if that reference means anything to you. It means I... so much to me. I have, <laughs> I have three children. It means more than you could possibly know. <laughs> right. Yeah. I have a, a, a little sister who's significantly younger than me. So I got to kind of relive all that. In fact, I'm still reliving all that stuff, revisiting the, the Hogwarts houses and stuff. It's, it's pretty weird. Um, <laughs> Next question for you, getting really into the sort of um, just pleasure of, of reading and stuff now. Um, one of the things I really like in any fiction, something I've always liked, is the concept of a sort of a duel between two like hyper powerful characters. So I can think of two that jumped out of me, jumped out at me as a kid. Um, in one, I read one or two different summaries or descriptions of the fight that Merlin in the King Arthur stories has with Morgan Lee, Morgana Le Fay, where they're both constantly shape-shifting, a lot like Journey to the West characters, actually. And the other one that stuck in my mind is, I don't know if this will mean anything to you, but um, when I was a kid, whenever I was, sometimes when I was over at a friend's house, they might have Sky TV, so they'd have hundreds of channels where I only had five at home. And the one I'd always want to watch is Cartoon Network. And there was a show on Cartoon Network sometimes called Dragon Ball Z, which I've learned now is quite heavily inspired by Journey to the West. But some of the sometimes on that you'd see like a hero and a villain or or something having a fight. And they're both so powerful that they're just zapping around in the sky, smashing into each other. And there's something about that that really, I don't know, presses my buttons more than like, say, two Jedi in Star Wars having a sword fight. Um so the the thing that surprised me reading, actually sitting down to read Journey to the West is just how often Monkey, who is insanely adept and powerful and can do just about anything, he continually, continuously kind of gets beaten up or outsmarted and has to call in Deus Ex Machina, basically, Guan Yin or other gods to solve his problems for him. So why do you think, just from like, I don't know, in, in the text itself, why do you think he doesn't win more often either by pure brute force or cunning? Why does he lose almost every time? Well, first of all, I think that's the key to fiction. You know, you've right. got to inflict the tension of adversity on your yeah. characters and readers. So if everything is throughout easy, it ceases to be interesting. I think, though, what you describe is also part of the kind of moral story um, of the book. It's part of Monkey's arc of redemption. So what originally gets him into trouble at the start of the book is conceit and arrogance that he's physically and magically unstoppable. So the whole point of the quest is that he has to be tamed, he has to be tempered, he has to learn to be a better monkey through suffering. He has to deploy his many talents for virtuous ends, namely to help the quest succeed. So yeah, he has to be tempered by adversity. He has to learn that superpowers alone will never make him more than a magic demonic monkey. To become a true immortal, he has to be spiritually enlightened. And I think the setbacks of the quest are a really important part of that. 
Right. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I guess yeah, the the part where we get this, we get that sort of almost um, having your cake and eating it um, victory with no adversity. That comes right at the start where he's able to go toe to toe, toe to toe. Sorry, with heaven. Although again, the thing I found a bit strange is just how after he's gone all the way up to heaven and was able to hold his own against heaven's armies, so to speak, he then goes down to earth. And for some reason, the lands west of the Tang Empire are full of demons who are even stronger than anything he faced before. It felt almost like like a video game in a way where the, or the thing that determines your opponent's strength is how, how good you are. They're always slightly above or slightly below you, but uh, there's not a question there. I just like bringing up video games on the podcast as much as no, I can. That, that, that's absolutely fine. I mean, I think that raises a broader question of whatever medium we're talking about, video games or film or fiction. Um, but I think it sort of brings up the question of the, the rules of fantasy. Right. And I think that the novel, um, which is enormously playful, the novel is full of the often quite nonsensically arbitrary rules of fantasy. Right. So, you know, Monkey is meant, as you say, is meant to be this superpowered um omni-competent um, creature um, who can transform himself into um, anything. Um, but there are all sorts of um, sort of questions and, and, and inconsistencies that emerge throughout the story. Uh, so, for example, um, at a couple of points, he disguises himself as an entirely convincing piece of cloth or even as a seven-inch caterpillar but in a separate um, challenge, um, he seems unable to lose his tail or red bottom when he disguise himse- disguises himself as a mounting. Uh, when he disguises himself as a mountain goblin, um, so you know all sorts of sort of arbitrary nonsense in there. Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. Um, here's another question for you. Again, just a fun one about the characters. Have you got a favorite? Um, I put here a part of the story or a character that n- nobody would expect. So that there might be some obvious favorites. Um, like I don't know, I'm sure a lot of people's favorite is just Sun Wukong. But is there anything you really like that um, might be a little bit unique to you? Well, I fear my choice might not be that surprising. Um, I find really interesting the episode when the pilgrims pass through the country of women and find the usual male-female power dynamics are reversed. To me, that was really eye-catching. So in these episodes, the, um, the, the, the male pilgrims find themselves falling pregnant, uh, being uncomfortably ogled by lustful women. They're vulnerable to sexual predation and possible violence and forced into marriage by people of the opposite sex more powerful than them. I found this imagination of a world of sexual power turned upside down, really fascinatingly subversive for a 16th century novel. And especially as Arthur Whaley had, for whatever reason, decided not to include these episodes. Um, for me, translating this part of the story was was an absolute must. Hmm. I, 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 so you were doing some analysis of the, the fantasy genre just a minute ago. Um, I've, I've got another completely unoriginal thought of my own about fantasy and other sort of genre fiction is you can often say things or comment on things 
sideways or indirectly, even if it's only slightly indirectly that you maybe couldn't get away with in fiction. And if I don't know if there's a message about how bad women have it or just that there's a power dynamic to the sexes or what have you. Do you, I mean, I, I, I'm i not an expert of other, I sorry, I don't know a lot about other literature of this time, but it, is there anything comparable out there in Chinese realist stories or essays or other fantasy, or is this really something quite unique about uh, this chapter? Is it really unique? Within the context of, of, of early modern fiction, sort of fiction from the Ming dynasty, early Qing dynasty, you mean? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking, yeah. Very interesting question. I don't have an answer to that. I, 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 I could I could find out an answer from a more knowledgeable person and, and supply it as a as a as a kind of um, uh, show notes um, mm -hmm. uh, um, extra. Um, I mean, I think the I think you're absolutely right about um, what fantasy enables an author to do and I think this role reversal um, is actually quite a direct and effective way um, of you know suddenly forcing readers most of whom realistically would have been male um, uh, um, five or so hundred years ago I think it's a really effective um, way of, of, of switching switching roles and, and, and yeah, power roles within Chinese society. Mm. This, this would be somewhere where I'd say, listeners, if anyone is um, screaming into their smartphone or laptop, the perfect example of something similar in, in ancient, well, or, sorry, medieval Chinese literature, please do get in touch on, on social media um, and I can, I can pass that one on or I can share the answer with all the other listeners because we'd be really interested to know. But yeah, um, I think I'm ready to go on to the next set of questions, uh, pursuing enlightenment. So we're going to try and get a little bit more deeper or more abstract or, or what have you. But anyway, here's the first question. So it's another reference back to some of those um, previous episodes I did. Uh, they were called mega crossovers, basically, where I had I tried to seek out everyone else who's doing podcasts somewhat related to Chinese lit. So we ended up talking about uh, a few of the classics, and one of them was Shui uh, Hudran. And uh, the the chapter that, uh, who was it? It was John, John Zhu from the Chinese lore podcast. He'd chosen it. And the question I asked him was about eating. Was there an awful lot of feasting in Shui Hu Zhuan? Because I remembered reading an essay way back when I was like 18 about the importance of feasting in a really ancient, or not ancient, a very, very old uh, piece of English literature, Beowulf, and how just Im how important in like a pre-technological or pre-advanced technological society, just how key to everything eating, especially together, is. And the, the reason I want to ask you about eating in um, uh, Monkey King, it's it's a little bit, eating is really quite important because uh, this really surprised me. Almost everybody we meet is a cannibal or they're a reformed one. At least if, if, you, if you exclude the human characters, there's so much cannibalism and eating of other sentient um, beings going on. I was really surprised. So I want to ask you again, is, is that something unique to this book or is, is that existing in a context that I'm not seeing? 
Yeah, it's a, a really interesting observation. Um, and there is actually human cannibalism, at least, right. threatened in the book um, with the notorious king of Bikku towards the end of the story when they're already um, uh, either approaching or in India. Um, and he his, 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 his plan, which is sort of fed to him by his evil Taoist advisor, um, is to kill more than 1,000 local little boys um, and um, make a soup out of their hearts. And this um, allegedly will um, uh, enable him to live to the age of to the age of, 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 of a thousand. So it really is in a lot of places in the book. But your, your question was, you know, is, is eating part of Chinese, Chinese demonology? Um, yeah, either cannibalism or eating in general. Yeah. Uh, I mean, certainly um, eating humans is uh, a, a central part. Um, uh, you know, Chinese demonology is full of evil spirits uh, wanting to consume people. And dealing with this paranormal problem is a major part of the duties of ritual specialists, so Buddhist and Taoist priests, who have to be brought in to exercise such demons. So I suppose then if we fast forward to a modern author who I've translated, uh, Lu Xun, whose kind of breakout short story, Diary of a Madman, Kuang Ren Ji, is absolutely sort of fixated with the idea of uh, cannibalism within uh, Chinese society. And obviously Lu Xun was using this motif to uh, attack uh, what he saw as the, the kind of the, 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 the sort of negative devouring energies of uh, and structures of um, uh, Confucian society in the early 20th century. Um, but uh, this idea obviously goes much deeper into uh, Chinese cultural and literary tradition, uh, which Lu Xun was you know, absolutely steeped in. Diary of a Madman was the book, I, or not book, story I covered for episode one of the podcast. And I, I was fairly sure it was a good choice at the time. And I've just seen that confirmed over and over by how many times I've been sort of brought back to it reading different interpretations in different contexts and reevaluations. And yeah, one, one I, I don't remember exactly what it was, but one I read recently was someone who'd done fairly well-researched study looking at other parallel or earlier examples that he might have been drawing on. So what, what you've just said there makes sense to me, a lot of sense. Um, I'm going to keep things going because we've got quite a few questions left. Um, the next one is about religion, uh, Buddhism and Taoism, or I guess Taoism, I should say. Um, they're pretty impossible to ignore in, in Journey to the West. So there's something I'm, I'm curious about, something fairly specific, and I could be quite a wrong-headed question. Um, is the heaven we see in Journey to the West, is that a completely Taoist or Taoist domain? And is the sort of Buddhist headquarters a real place on the physical plane at Thunderclap Mountain in India? Is that a correct distinction to be making? You're absolutely right about heaven. So heaven is the jurisdiction of the Jade Emperor, the supreme ruler of the Taoist religious universe with a government of lesser immortals and spirits beneath him. And right. Thunderclap monastery is the residence of the Buddha in India. Um, but if you actually have a physical 
copy of the book, you'll see there is a beautiful map uh, at the front um, uh, mm. drawn by um, Laura Hartman Maestro. Um, and she has a very um, wry observation in one of the corners, which I really love, um, in which she points out, quote, these lands are somewhat mythical, unquote. <laughs> so yep. neither um, uh, the Taoist heaven nor the Buddhist thunderclap monastery is a um, real location. Uh, having said that, the depiction of religion in the novel does tell us much of historical factual value about the syncretic coexistence of belief systems in imperial China. Um, uh, so three teachings um, uh, coexisted uh, together, Buddhism, Taoism, and the set of political and social customs we call Confucianism. And, you know, these three sets of teachings sort of intertwined, um, adding, of course, kind of popular religion as well, local cults and so on. But all these different teachings sort of intertwined and borrowed things from each other. And as we see in Journey to the West, that yes, this, this intertwining is, is, is very much instantiated. For example, um, we see that the Buddha and the Jade Emperor um, are really very much on the same team, as it were. You know, they invite each other to banquets and they help each other out, for example, uh, when one of them is being harassed by a hell-raising monkey. Yeah, this has got to be one of my favourite things about tradition, cultural traditions in China, because having come from the, you know, the far west end of, uh, of, of Europe and having all my school RE lessons, have, you know, they pretty much were almost all about the Abrahamic religions and any history lesson that didn't go sufficiently far back was usually colored with either some kind of Christian oppressing other Christians or the, these three Abrahamic religions murdering each other or oppressing each other. And then maybe I'm being very general here, but it seems like it was, seems like it's almost the opposite in, in, in Chinese history, as far as the three, um, I don't know, disciplines or faiths or whatever you want to call them are concerned. So it was, it was nice to see uh, the three sort of being represented as such in Monkey King, although from what I remember, there is some kind of like squabbling and rivalries as well, but they're all very sort of minor. There's nothing um, hyper dogmatic or upsetting. Yeah, I, I think through Chinese history, obviously, there is a struggle at in different courts yeah. uh, between you know Buddhist and Taoist advisors. And of course, you know, Imperial China is no stranger to um religiously engendered violence. You know, you only have to study the sort of apocalyptic millenarian um uh, sort of uh, uh, tradition within um imperial chinese history to see that but i do also um agree that you know the 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 the, the many periods of um just sort of quite pacific intertwining of these um sort of four types of, of faiths and uh, teaching uh, do seem very refreshing uh, next to um, certain parts of Western Christian history. 
Yeah, and um, when you mentioned syncretism, that was making me think again of of video games. Maybe that says something about me. But if if you'll pardon my self indulgence here, I I got myself quite a nice new laptop recently, and I got a game for it called uh, Rome Total War Two, where you build an empire of some kind in like around the Mediterranean, and occasionally it pops up saying you need a to choose one of three policies to manage the different cultures that you've incorporated into your empire. And the three buttons say, I think one says tolerance, where you treat the different groups nicely, but they stay sort of separate. One is something like oppression, where you, or maybe it's not oppression, but it's where your mainstream culture replaces all the other marginal ones. And the button I always click is syncretism, where I forget exactly what effects it produces in the game, but the idea is that the cultures are interacting somewhat harmoniously and blending and producing something that wasn't there before. And that's something on this podcast. And when I was living in China, I was always looking for different kinds of hybridity, not just um, Western and Chinese, but like um, I really found it interesting when I visited the Northeast, seeing like uh, Chinese and Russian or Chinese and Korean things sort of coming together, or uh, I visited Yunnan and saw, I guess, similar things, but at a different border. And a thing I really enjoyed both in your intro and in the story itself was the sort of hints at or themes of um, the Tang or Han Chinese emperor, eh, sorry, empire having interactions and being interested in trying to take in things from outside, um, namely from India. But I guess a lot of the the journey that our characters are going on there in the places between uh, the Tanga Empire and India. And a thing you pointed out in your intro is that a lot of those quote-unquote foreign places don't seem very foreign. They seem like, I forget exactly how you phrased it, you phrased it really well, but they don't seem very differentiated from like a conventional Han Chinese setting. So I wanted to ask, do you see any places where foreign cultures or cultural hybridity is sort of creeping in or being presented or appearing in a way a reader might not notice at first? Hmm, really interesting question. Yeah, the, the, the novel is, of course, ostensibly about a journey out of China through Tibet along the old Silk Road routes deep mm. into India. But there are some strange features to this journey. The landscape never changes much. So all along the way, there are the same sort of huge mountains, vast rivers, shady forests, impressive city-states, usually all harboring demons of one sort or another. And the Chinese religious universe always holds sway. So, you know, the same Buddhist, Taoist spirits and gods always turn up, um, governing the behaviour of mortals. Everyone seems to speak Chinese, or at least there's no mention of the travellers struggling with foreign languages. Right. And some readers have used these observations to argue that the journey is mental or spiritual, not physical. So it's all about the tempering of fallen immortals and Tripitaka. But there are also particular mentions towards the end of the journey of encountering foreign, often Indian city-states. And sometimes the author or the characters note that these cities are very much the equal of the best of China. Having said that, when the pilgrims return to China at the end and are treated to a huge welcome home banquet by the Tang Emperor, they, quote, appreciated how great China was and how mediocre the kingdoms of the West were by comparison, <laughs> unquote. So, so it's a rather contradictory set of messages. Namely, the cities of the West are glittering and impressive, but 
China is still better. Nonetheless, exactly as, as you said, I would still argue that the very premise of the novel, this odyssey out of China to attain the wisdom of Indian Buddhist civilization, um, this tells an important cosmopolitan story of Chinese fascination with foreign exotica. And this is just one of the ways in which the novel is subversive of some lazy, non-specialist cliches about China, um, such as the idea that imperial China was self-sufficient and exclusionary and isolationist. Um, you know, quite the opposite is the case. You know, China yeah. has always had deep, complex relationships with the world beyond its borders, um, including or even especially Central Asia and India. Yeah, and what you've, I know enough about Chinese history to know that the picture you've painted of China there being very connected with its neighbours and the world, really that strongly applies to uh, Tang China. And it was making me think when the text is complementing um, the China or the Chinese Empire, it, it's the Tang Dynasty, which I think the episode I got most into that was about a video game. <laughs> I know it's weird I keep bringing them up, but I have one episode on a video game called Gujian, and I had uh, a translator who's mostly works with sci-fi, Emily Jin, she came on. And for a significant portion of that episode, we were just sort of um, both, more probably her, effusing about how awesome Tang China and Chang'an must have been. And that makes me think, it occurs to me now, this, this book, at least in its original version, is from after the Tang. So do you think there might be an element of the author looking back on those better times or those sort of idealized times? Do you think that could be something in that final quote about it, China being absolutely amazing? Yeah, that that there, there could be that message there that, that China was at its biggest and most impressive when it was this very expansive, multicultural entity um, and you know the the it's it's it, it's just incredible to imagine what life uh, at the height of Tang era Chang'an the imperial capital uh, must have been like with um, you know sort of teeming with uh, merchants and um, exotic items uh, from uh, Central Asia and the far west um, and you're thinking about the era in which the novel was compiled into the form in which we read it now. So the 16th century, um, this of course was at a very different moment of foreign policy for the for, for China, for the, the, the Chinese empire under the Ming dynasty. Um, so, you know, the last few decades of the 16th century and early decades of the 17th century, were the the, the 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 most intensive period of building um, a bricks and mortar great wall uh, north of Beijing, um, ostensibly to protect China from the steppe. Um, I think sort of architecturally that makes uh, a, a strong statement about the 
then government, the then imperial government, wanting to demarcate itself uh, from the world north of its borders. Um, So that must have felt like a very different moment, particularly as it goes hand in hand with a time when Ming government is um, sort of imploding in on itself. Um, uh, It's um, uh, 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 the, 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 the empire is increasingly impoverished. Um, So on that level, it would have been perhaps quite easy to look back to this point of flourishing uh, and expansiveness in the uh, 7th century to look back with nostalgia. I mean, that's how I feel looking back on a time I didn't live in, the 60s and 70s. I would have loved to have been alive back when we had in the UK, I don't know, um, a welfare state and rapid social change i feel like a lot of that isn't there so and we and we have um i guess a wall building project uh, brexit going on right now yes <laughs> yeah and on that note um uh, a lighter a lighter question um how advanced do you think the humor is in this book and by advanced i guess i mean sort of like indirect not just pure slapstick sure yeah, yeah, it all comes down to the definition of advanced, um, which might also include things like playing with language, register, um, sort of relationships and hierarchies with, as you say, slapstick. At the other end of the spectrum, I'd say that there's there's a great range of humour in the original. Um, the, the, the challenge comes with always representing it in contemporary English, which is chronologically and geographically so distant from early modern Chinese vernacular. And, and humour can be very hard to translate directly. There's clear resort to slapstick in the book. For example, when uh, Monkey infamously urinates on the hand of the Buddha, on the more refined end of the spectrum, there's plenty of satire, for example, of government and bureaucracy. So the book depicts the afterlife and uh, the immortal world as exactly reproducing the jobs worth arbitrariness of mortal bureaucracy. You, you know, you can't even die without getting the necessary approvals <laughs> from the correct supernatural department. Yeah. There's also political satire. So no one in authority comes off well. The Jade Emperor mm. is a capricious dictator. The Buddha's lieutenant, Guan Yin, delights in tormenting monkey, whereas she's supposed to be a, a, a goddess of compassion and mercy. The Buddha condones corruption in his own government of immortals. Also, the language and humour of the original are rich and complex in ways that, unfortunately, a translation can't always convey gracefully, fluently or economically. So there are many puns that would require cumbersome footnotes to explain. And I always think that nothing kills a joke quite like a footnote. But I think the main currency of humour in the novel is a universal one, situation comedy, repartee between well-defined characters. And much of this involves Monkey, who is unstoppably sassy and smart talking in the face of appalling dangers um uh and uh especially it also involves his rivalry with pigsy yeah i'm not trying to flatter you too much here but i think your translation again like i said especially in the dialogue it did make me laugh quite a few times i mean i suppose the events 
in of themselves are funny, but some of your renderings, the, especially some of the very, maybe not, maybe mod, modern isn't quite the right word, but just very readable, sassy, often dialogue. I really liked it. it, it oh, books don't so usually make me laugh out loud. So. Oh, thank you. It's all right. I'm, I'm, um, I'm flicking through just now to see if anything funny will, will jump out at me. Um, nothing is, nothing is launching out the page. Do you have any like favorite comedic incidents? Well, on this subject of monkeys, um, sassiness in the face of your know, really exceptional perils and torments, uh, there's, there's an exchange that he has with an immortal messenger disguised as a woodcutter who brings monkey news of some truly appalling mountain trolls who they're about to encounter. So I'll um, just quickly read that passage. So it starts um, with the announcement by the uh, immortal messenger. Deep in this mountain lies the lotus flower cave, home to two monsters determined to have you for dinner. What luck, responded monkey cheerfully. Do you know how they plan to eat us? I beg your pardon, asked the nonplussed woodcutter. I see you are inexperienced in such matters, explained Monkey. If they start with the head, I'll be dead in one bite. All good. After that, they can fry, saute, braise or boil me. It wouldn't matter a jot. But if they start with my feet, well, I might still be alive even when they get to my pelvis. And that would be literally a pain. Back to the immortal messenger. You're overthinking this. The monsters will catch you pop you in a steamer, then eat you whole. Better still, exclaimed Monkey, just a touch of stuffiness, then it'll all be over. Beware, flippant Monkey, beware. These monsters have five treasures of incomparable magic power. Beware. It, I, I noticed, I remember something I was trying to articulate there about the, the dialogue when Monkey says, it wouldn't matter a jot. He sounds sort of like, a, I don't know, he sounds kind of English, like a a rogue or ruffian from a, a film from like I don't know the 50s or 60s do you know what I mean yeah I, I think that on the whole the because I am British mm. my register and range of reference tends to be more British rather than globe-trotting American but I did work with my editor in New York to make sure um, that there weren't that many um, Britishisms in there that wouldn't work in American English. I suppose what, you know, that particular usage that you pointed to um, suggests is, is perhaps a, a, a Jeeves and Worcester, so sort of yeah. Woodhouse frame <laughs> of, of, of reference. And, yeah. you know, one of the many pleasures of doing this translation was going back to some of my favorite works of comic fiction. So you're know, looking, looking for a style, looking for a mood. Um, I think Woodhouse is in there a little bit, um, uh, maybe even a tiny bit of Molesworth, um, Jerome K. Jerome, Three Men in a Boat, but also because there's quite a lot that is quite childlike about Monkey. I also very much enjoyed going back to some of my favourite comic children's chapter books. I'm a big fan of a writer called Andy Stanton and uh, his Mr Gum books, which are really linguistically 
inventive and playful in the best way. So that was a really fun aspect to doing this translation. Yeah, um, it's funny. I'm. You mentioned like your your local identity and these old comics. I'm from. I'm and I'm in Dundee, the the home of Dennis the Menace and the Beano comics. So you know what you mean about that kind Happy of birthday. Play, play. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh yeah, they're having an anniversary or something, aren't they? Is that right? I- I think so. It was on the news yesterday. Oh, right. So this is why I should watch the news. Yeah, I think I saw something on, on Twitter about that. But yeah, that said, I'm glad that he's a little bit more of a Jeeves and Wooster monkey than a Bart Simpson, Dennis the Menace monkey. I like that there's a little bit of a, I don't know, he's not, what am I trying to say? It's, it's not, it's funny, but it's not always completely crude, the dialogue. I, I like that. <laughs> Even though he's quite a naughty monkey, he's fairly good with his words when he wants to be. <laughs> Uh, next question this is appropriately it's a oh no sorry this isn't the the question after this one is a very silly one this one's only moderately silly uh it's if you can suggest a a chinese word of the day because we we do this for every episode is there any chinese word or phrase that would be a great one to kind of use either draw from or use as representative of uh, journey to the west monkey king Oh, I don't think that question is at all silly. Um, <laughs> the, the, the book is linguistically extraordinarily rich. And while doing the translation, I learned so many intricate terms I didn't know before for different animals, stars, fruits, kung fu moves, um, obscure alchemical processes. But I think a keyword comes from the title. You know, this keyword is, is, is yo. So the original title is Xi Yongji literally the Western Journey Chronicle or Journey to the West as it's more often rendered. Um, so in the translation of the title, Yo is translated as journey, but it can also mean play. And I think that double meaning captures a couple of very important aspects of the book. First, that it's a multi-layered open text that can generate different readings at different levels. And second, that playfulness lies at the very heart of the book's journey. All right. Thanks for that answer, Julia. Um, Here is the silly question I promised. Um, If Journey to the West was a food or a drink, uh, what would it be? Now, um, the rules are soft, hot and hard drinks are accepted. Um, but I've recently had to launch a bit of an imperial decree. I've banned people saying a really strong black coffee or a cocktail mix of everything because we've had that too many times. So uh, bearing that in mind, um, what what would Journey to the West be in your reckoning? Okay, I'm going to go for sour plum or prune juice here. So swan mei tang. Right. Maybe if you'll if you'll allow me if possible a kind of cappuccino effect fizzy sour prune juice um so stay with me here angus <laughs> so on the top on the surface you have uh, delicious tangy fizzy fun so monkey's mischief making the action packed situation comedy of the book but beneath that kind of surface fun and show there's lots that's uh, morally fibrous about the book that's doing you good mentally and intellectually. So through reading Journey to the West, you can learn so much about Chinese politics, culture, society and religion. And the book is 
subversive of all sorts of lazy cliches about Chinese culture that still exist in non-specialist circles in the West, so cliches about Chinese culture worshipping hierarchy and authority or being isolated from the world outside its borders. I don't know if you'll allow me that, um, but um, it's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm done shredding my intellectual credibility now. <laughs> no, that's what the show's all about, really. Um, um, I wanted to ask, actually, because you mentioned the kind of outsider, amateur, kind of silly cliches about China, and the ones you mentioned are about it being like closed off, authoritarian, hierarchical, Maybe, I, I don't have a totally clear idea here. How, do you think that's sort of a product of mainland China being a communist country? Do you think it's people taking the ruling party and the ideology and generalizing that about the culture in a sort of a perhaps racist or at least dubious way? I think quite a lot of these cliches about China, particularly this cliche of, of, of China being isolationist or xenophobic, go back to the 19th century, the earliest period of, of quite intensive interaction between China and Western countries. So um, this was an era when uh, China suffered a number of traumatic um, wars and invasions uh, by Britain, France, other European countries, um, uh, US and uh, Japan. And looking back to you know, the first of those conflicts, the first opium war uh, between 1840 and 1842, um, you see this is a real crux moment for um, the transformation of images uh, of China in the sort of popular British and then more broadly Western imagination. Um, so in order to justify uh, fighting this extremely immoral war with China in order to protect uh, the British, uh, the illegal British opium trade uh, with China. Um, China uh, was demonized in the popular press uh, in Britain. Uh, you know, it was demonized as sort of ruled by um, isolationist uh, authoritarians. Um, so I, I, I think that you know, the, the, the ins and outs of history since then have also had a role to play in generating these cliches, but, but the roots, I would set them in the 19th century. I don't know if this is me again, um, sort of projecting my own interest into the conversation. Um, did, did you see or hear about um, a recent documentary that was on the BBC by Adam Curtis? Uh, it was called Can't Get You Out of My Head. I have heard about it. I'm afraid I haven't watched it yet. Mm, well, I, I mentioned being a bit nostalgic for like the the very early, like 50s, 60s, 70s welfare state and Britain that I never lived in, the very early post-war Britain. And if, if you want to get to grips with someone who's really thinks that was as good as it got, Adam Curtis is probably your guy. Um, but so he, he's done a lot of documentaries in his throughout his career, looking at the US and the UK and sometimes when, when foreign countries come up, it's often been like foreign policy stuff uh, and wars. So Iraq, uh, Afghanistan, the Middle East. But this most recent series, he kind of took a few parallel stories or historical developments in the US, the UK and China. He, he did. For someone who's interested in China, it would be a fairly typical look at, I don't know, um, the 
start of the the Mao era through to reform and opening. But he looked at it from a few unusual angles. Um, one of them was that he followed um, uh, Mao's wife, Jiang Qing, through it. It was kind of her story as much as China's. But um, getting to the point, he did bring up the opium wars, but he did it a little bit like you just explained as kind of a source of racist thinking about China. Um, his analysis, and it's definitely just an, anal- an analysis, it's, um, it's humanities department thinking, um, where he said that the British imperial regime, especially, and the, the elites in, in Britain knew, or a lot of them, at least unconsciously knew how awful a thing they were doing um, with regards to the opium enforcing opium into China and it produced a sort of a guilty conscience there was an awareness that basically we're the bad guys so how do you assuage that guilt well you you either develop a fear that some kind of revenge is coming and his argument is that's where the yellow peril sort of came from or you might develop a sort of racist line of thought where you think well they're they're beneath us so it's okay but yeah the foundation is awful wrongdoing on the part of the west which uh, absolutely that's that evidence-based point yeah, that's that's really interesting, and and a few people have um, recommended that documentary to me now, so I really feel motivated to watch it. But just in in response to the point that you just made there, that was you know absolutely the the, the cultural history which I excavated when I was writing about the um, opium war and its sort of after effects in uh, on, on on British opinion. Right. Interesting. I'd I'd like to read that. I've I said I read your your um, Zhang Ailin translation, but I've not read any of your nonfiction. And we should say as a plug, you mentioned the Maoism uh, Global History book earlier. That's out. Um, if you're listening and want to read it, that's published, right? Yeah, that that's right. Um, I mean, if, if listeners listeners want to read um, any more of my work, they can look at my other translations of of, of Lu Xun, Han Xiaogong, Zhu Wen, Zhang Ailing, and uh, Yan Lianke, and others. Uh, there are my books too. Most recently, Maoism: A Global History. But if you go to my faculty website at Birkbeck College, University of London, um, that will tell you about my teaching and my past, present, and future interests. Awesome. That was actually completely accidental that we segued into my next question, uh, the self-promo slot. So is there anywhere else you didn't mention there that we could direct listeners who are interested in your own work? Or is there anything else you'd like to plug? Um, I have quite a light internet footprint. <laughs> That's mm. about it, I'm afraid. Okay, no problem. Um, I, I guess I could say to, to yourself and anyone listening, if you do go into the uh, Adam Curtis can't get that you out of your head expecting him to be a real China expert you might be a little bit disappointed um some of the, I think some of the arguments are a bit basic and he he narrates documentaries himself and there's some basic pinyin he obviously hasn't learned to pronounce so um manage your expectations Ari um uh, can't get me can't get you out of my head but it is it is interesting um so that's my one sort of anti plug that I would give. Um, very last section of questions now, the further reading questions. So if our listeners want more Journey to the West, where would you direct them? Naturally, first of all, I'd suggest reading the full unabridged translation of the book, either Anthony Hughes or Bill Jenner's. Um, they're multi-volume and the first volume of Anthony Hughes' book has a wonderful 100-page introduction to the book, which is wow. well worth reading. 100 pages. Um, 
You could also go to uh, Andrew Platt's The Four Masterworks, which has um, a, a, an introduction and a full chapter on Journey to the West, which gives fantastic context and interpretation. And I also love uh, Hong Mei Sun's book, Transforming, Transforming Monkey, uh, which talks about the many adaptations of the novel. Cool. Um, this was a point I, I never got back on, but I, I noticed you mentioned the word shapeshifters quite early on. And I was meaning to bring that up at some point, but you, you, just, you just mentioned the different shapes there again. Is there anything, I don't know, is there anything interesting we can say about shapeshifting in, in the novel? Because it is a huge part. And it, from what I remember, it's not just monkey who can change his shape. Yeah, I think I think that um, was Andrew... Plaques has an interesting uh, take on this. He talks about the rise of um, vernacular fiction and its accessibility as reflecting a sort of broader phenomenon of greater fluidity um, within the society of uh, Ming China at the time. So you have um, a, a growing population rising education and uh, literacy rates. Um, uh, so, uh, and sort of increased internal migration within the country. So a sort of mobility, he's arguing that a, um, that, that the, the, the kind of mobility of uh, vernacular fiction um, and particularly of this story um, reflects a, a kind of actual population mobility within uh, Ming China at the time. Yeah, I could I could buy that. That's an interesting argument. I realize I've I've gone from our sort of winding down questions back into complicated stuff. So I'll I'll go back to the the final question actually. What are you reading just now or or these days? Well one of the wonderful results of translating journey to the west is that it has changed me or my own interests so again back to this idea of shape-shifting it's a book about transformation that I feel has also transformed me so my training is in modern Chinese and my research up till this point has been on very uh, modern secular subjects but working on this translation required me to take a deep dive into Chinese religion, mythology, and pre-modern fiction. And I'm still exploring widely in these subjects now. So right now I'm uh, reading Richard von Glan's fantastic book, The Sinister Way. Um, and this seeks the roots of a Chinese god of wealth in about 3000 years of Chinese demonology. So it's an absolutely extraordinary piece of research. Uh, yeah, that is that is the full gamut of my questions. Awesome. Yeah, I think we, we got through a lot um, relatively concisely. Some of these interviews have gone on for, Jesus, so long you wouldn't believe, but we've, I've, I feel that we've done a pretty good job talking about your translation. And I should just say for the listeners, it's um, not only is it a really great read, very readable translation, the production team at Penguin have just made, in general, a, a beautiful book. I know there's there's two editions. There's one that has a sort of a patterned cover and one that has a more sort of, I don't know what you call it, like a digital art, Sun Wukong on the front. Um, and that map you mentioned inside as well is, that's almost worth the purchase alone. It's an amazing, beautiful two-page affair. Yeah, I th thanks for mentioning that, uh, Angus. The 
production teams in in both um, uh, New York and London did a, a phenomenal job with um, production and visuals. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess I'll I'll say thank you now for for being such a great guest, Julia, and I'll end the interview. Thanks so much, Angus. Great to speak with you. Yeah. Right, so that is the end of the interview, which means we're almost at the end of the show. Just the plugs left. Now, you probably, you might well know these off by heart. Um, I'm just going to try and be quick today. So, uh, plug one, I'm working on putting together a mailing list. Right now, it's just a way to get pinged for with like an email when a new episode comes out. But once 50 people are signed up, I'm going to start using it as a sort of like a blog behind the scenes, up, scenes update sort of thing social media so ways to get in touch with myself or other fans probably the coolest way would be discord there's a link to the church of Fake discord server in the show notes um a fun place a fun and happy internet zone where you can um follow the show and get in touch is instagram uh, at church of Fic, t-r-c-h-f-i-c if you want to get in touch or follow on a much less happy place there's twitter um just go to at angus likes words if you want to help support the show uh, there's a link in the show notes where there's lots of different ways that you can sort of uh, get bonus content or just send a one-off contribution this helps me cover server fees like hosting fees and you know all, all that jazz um last of all the best thing you can do for the show is not financial it's not digital it's out there in the real world and it's recommending it to your friends or your family but i think what would be best sort of um in light of this Journey to the West episode is to sort of gather a team of listeners. Ideally, one of you should be half animal or possibly all of you. Um, it'd be good if at least one of you was a demon. And then what you do is you all sort of put your headphones on at the same time and you do sort of like a silent disco, but rather than a disco, it's a long trek that takes years. And across those years, you just perpetually listen to the show, which racks up my play count, which is great because it forms a virtuous circle where I have more play counts, which makes the podcast more attractive. But also, whilst you're doing that, you should be sort of spreading the word throughout the lands. So um, I guess where exactly you're walking will determine, where, where you started will determine where your westward quest takes you. So if you're on like the east coast of America, that's great because there's a lot of land before you hit the sea. Uh, myself in Dundee, that would only get me as far as like the west coast of Scotland, but there's still a lot of people who I could sort of convert um, to becoming subscribers across <laughs> across that quest. So I'm going to do that. I'm definitely not just lying um, and I hope you'll do the same. I hope you'll go on a quest to make me famous. Um, with no, you know, no promise of compensation. It, seem, it seems like a fair deal to me. So anyway, um, until you finish your quest and until the next episode comes out, it's IGN. 